Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello, my name's Jamila Rizvi, and today I am joined by my regular co-host Astrid Edwards, as well as author Michael Mohammed Ahmed. Mohammed was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award for the Lebs, and his new book is The Other Half of You. It's hard to find the words for this conversation with Mohammed because he was so raw and generous and warm and honest about life as an author, writing about subjects that perhaps others don't always want to hear about, and writing when even the critics misunderstand you. I hope you really enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Firstly, uh, thank you for having me. And I always love to start my interviews by saying assalamu alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. And I extend that salam to all the wonderful people who are listening in on this interview. I wrote the other half of you as a letter to my son, Khalil Isa Ahmed, who is the product of an Arab Australian Muslim father and an Anglo Australian mother. And I wanted to tell him a story about unity and solidarity, particularly in the face of such divisive times. And I wanted to fundamentally frame this narrative through the lens of love. And the reason why I was so committed to telling a story about love this time, after two books that were, especially the previous one, about hate and fear, the reason I wanted to tell a story about love is because I think Arab Muslim men are often imagined as very one-dimensional and we're usually pigeonholed as terrorists, misogynists, patriarchs. In Australia, stereotypes about us as sexual predators and drug dealers and gangsters. That's the usual narrative you hear about us. And so I wanted to try and reclaim our humanity, actually, and show this side to our community of men who are very tender and gentle and who are at their core very romantic and poetic. Talk to me about how Arab and Muslim fathers and fathers in particular are portrayed differently in literature and perhaps in the media more broadly than white fathers. Thank you. That's the perfect question. I think that's the question that hits the nail on the head. So when you look at recent history, let's broaden it for starters to men of colour and Indigenous men. And we'll use the examples of uh, Bill Leake, who was the conservative cartoonist who worked for The Australian. A few years ago, actually just before he passed away, he'd been caught up in quite a serious controversy because he'd drawn a cartoon of an Indigenous father not recognising his son. And what a lot of people forget is that he'd actually done similar cartoons about Arab and Muslim men earlier. A particular cartoon that comes to mind for me is a Palestinian father dressed in a you know, military outfit with a Palestinian kofiya over his face 
pushing his child into a war zone and saying, go and win daddy's PR war for him. And I think the construction of these images tries to send out the message that we don't love our children as much as white men do, that we use our children as human shields or we're completely indifferent to our children. And the problem is that this doesn't only have a very personally symbolic pain for us to see an image like that. It doesn't just hurt me emotionally. It has real world consequences. We are seeing ongoing mistreatment of indigenous communities. The mainstream media, you know, a few years ago, there was white journalists on Seven Sunrise saying that it's a no brainer to continue to take indigenous children away from their families, you know, uh, having a second stolen generation. In the Middle East at the moment, we are seeing dozens of Palestinian children being slaughtered, being massacred by Israeli occupation, literal bombs being dropped on their homes. And so the dehumanization of people of color and, and Muslim people, including fathers, actually leads to incredibly real world consequences. Can you tell us about the reaction that you are getting to the book? It is a very, very tender book. There is language in there for anyone who hasn't read it yet, but this is a tender book, a father to his son. But also as the book continues, it is a son reflecting on his father. You know, there are three generations of fatherhood that are examined in the book. And I'm interested now that the other half of you has been out for a little while. What responses are you getting and are they differing between men and women? Thank you so much for that question. Yes, the answer is yes. I think if you read the recent article in The Guardian by Sarah Ayub, who's an Arab-Australian woman who grew up in the same neighbourhood as me and who also has mixed-race children, you know, her partner is Anglo-Australian. I think, you know, she goes really out of her way to portray me and to portray the characters in my book, particularly the Arab and Muslim men, as complex and three-dimensional and really focuses on the story and the narrative about love, about romance, about us coming together and about the very sincere attempt on my part to subvert so many of the negative stereotypes about our community. In contrast, if you saw the review, which I'm, I'm presuming maybe you did, of the other half of you in the Sydney Morning Herald this weekend, which was written by Clint Coward, who's a, you know, a, a white man, it was gut-wrenching and it was really painful for me and my community. I received hundreds of emails, angry emails from fellow Arab Australians who were really upset about the review because he completely ignored all of the tenderness and all of the humanity of the book. And he just kind of politicized me and politicized my book in a way that is literally not part of the narrative. I'll give you some examples. He refers to the book as a political pamphlet. He refers to Banny as having studied U.S. critical race theory, which is factually untrue. Banny studies, as you would know, having read the book, that it's actually Banny's at university studying the Western literary canon. Uh, he describes Banny's environment as a civil rights battleground. And me and my community interpreted this review as blatantly anti-Arab and Islamophobic and using the most classic racist and xenophobic tropes to describe Arab and Muslim literature. What I would say to our, our wonderful listeners and to our audience is read uh, Sarah Ayub's article, read the criticisms and the literary criticism, read Clint Coward's review, but then read the book and really make up your own mind about what I'm trying to say. And if there's any basis for what I'm trying to say. Thank you for bringing up those differing reviews. Mohammed. I follow review culture and differing reviews in Australia quite closely. And it's wonderful when a book is reviewed and reviewed differently. However, there have been several instances in the last couple of years in Australia where major publications publish what are 
divisive and potentially racist reviews often by white critics and I say this as a white woman on a podcast with you at the moment and I would heartily recommend to everybody listening when they see differing reviews like that go to the source material read the book and make up your own mind think for yourself absolutely (laughs) think for yourselves and don't just agree with the white critic that you might find in a major publication Can I say one more thing? Just that point I was making about how this kind of behavior has real world consequences. And I don't think it's an accident. These are deliberate strategies. If you look at the history of uh, the work of somebody like Clint Coward, you will immediately identify why he has such a bigoted agenda against a writer like me and other minority writers that he's been kicking down recently. But, you know, I work in a suburb in Sydney called Macquarie Fields, which is one of the most marginalized communities in the country, incredibly culturally diverse. And, you know, the majority of the kids we're working with are not even working class. They are in welfare conditions. And, you know, when I arrived at that school the other day, it was the first time in the whole term that I've been teaching these children as a creative writer that the teachers had begun to express suspicions about me and began to doubt my ability to teach these children. And it's because they told me they saw that review in the Sydney Morning Herald and that they were worried that I was politicizing their students. And that is the intention of these kinds of narratives that try to create one dimensional racist stereotypes about Arab and Muslim men. It's about trying to stop us from actually doing our work. You know, the great African-American writer Toni Morrison argues that racism is a distraction. Its purpose is designed to stop us from telling our stories. In this particular case, in the case of the other half of you, the story I tell is a love story. It's a story about people from different cultures and different religions and different communities coming together to create the next generation of human beings who are going to inherit this world. It's also the story, not just of creating the next generation of people, but of you know, re-evaluating one's culture and renewing one's culture and finding a place in the 21st century, negotiating the social contract that we all have to do. And we come to that with different families and different histories. And it is difficult. And you have written it into Australian literature, Mohammed. Thank you. I also want to point out because, you know, Astrid, every time we've had a conversation, this is our fourth one, I'm always honoured and I always have very stimulating conversations with you. And what's interesting is, you know, you always take accountability for your identity as a white woman. I always take accountability for my identity as an Arab Muslim man. I'm always juggling the privileges versus the disadvantages that I navigate in an intersectionally complex society. But what I would say is that I wouldn't just racialize this. I think gender plays a serious role in how we have these discussions. And I really think that if you're looking at the literary criticism around the other half of you at the moment, the very obvious divide is not just a racialized one, but it's also how women are interpreting my work and my stories versus the way men are interpreting it. And I really think that I go out of my way not to speak on behalf of women, especially not the women in my community, Arab and Muslim women. But I do try to show the experience of being an Arab Muslim man and how we relate to the women in our communities, in our culture, in professional capacities. And then, of course, in very intimate and personal capacities, mothers and sisters and partners, for example. Can I ask about writing to a son who is growing up I don't want to say between two cultures, but is born of two different cultures. And so is experiencing the world in part as an Arab Muslim boy and carries that with him, but at the same time is balancing the expectations and realities of having 
the influence of a white mother. How did you grapple with what that future looks like? Thank you for that question. I have a line in the book because Banny addresses his son, as you would know, multiple times in the book. And there's a line where Banny says, don't be ashamed of your Arabness and don't feel entitled to your whiteness as both you are neither. And I think that the conversation more broadly about speaking to our children through literature is not uncommon for men of color and for people of color. Probably the most famous example in recent history would be Between the World and Me by Tenahisi Coates, which is addressed to his black children. And the idea I think behind this way of storytelling is that we're trying to prepare our children for the world they're going to inherit. And it's not it's, uh, it's sad to say that it's not likely that they're going to inherit a particularly beautiful world. The world he's going to inherit, my son, uh, Tenehisi Coates' sons, are worlds that, you know, will, they'll have to grapple with climate change. They'll have to grapple with the threat of nuclear war. They'll have to grapple with very serious conversations that the world is having right now about racism and white supremacy and uh, imperialism and colonialism. And so in, for me, in many ways, the story is about preparing my mixed race son for the world that he's going to inherit. And I, I want to say to anyone that's listening that uh, the most important point I could make is that the last couple of years have been incredibly divisive and upsetting for us as Australians, all of us. An Australian born white supremacist in 2019 entered two mosques in Christchurch and slaughtered 51 Muslims peacefully conducting their Friday prayers, men, women and children. Last year, with the you know, emergence of COVID-19, we saw a tremendous rise of anti-Asian violence. And then, of course, Black Lives Matter brought tremendous attention in Australia and around the world to the mistreatment of black communities and indigenous communities. It's been an incredibly divisive time. It's been a time when we have been split across racial lines, trying to have these very difficult conversations. And while I try to have the very difficult conversations with my son and with the Australian public through this book, I also wanted to tell a story that that is a about bringing us together and that is about hope and is also about the idea that there is a chance that we as a species are going to survive this and if there's one thing that I think is going to enable us to survive it it's love it's the love we have for our children it's the love we have for each other and so that's really the message I think that people hopefully will take away from the book by the end of it. Similar I suppose to your son but obviously at a different time I also grew up between two cultures. I have an Indian Muslim father and Australian born mother. And it's so interesting. My sister and I reflect on our upbringing and how much I think my dad, not intentionally, but stepped back from his culture because he could see the benefits for us and the privileges for us of leaning into our white upbringing. And I reflect on that with such sadness. And I've got to say, reading your words has made me feel a lot more optimistic about how we raise kids now in a way that balances and recognises the privileges that come with the white parts of their culture and the joy and the love that comes from both sides of their family because I felt quite deprived of that as a kid and and kind of found it more as a late teenager, as an adult, because I went searching for it because it felt undone and I think there really is a generation of mixed race Australian kids from a whole bunch of different backgrounds who feel like they haven't properly honoured one side of their culture and this book felt like a gift to them. 
Look, I'm really moved to hear you tell your personal story here. It gave me goosebumps because, you know, I've had the privilege of talking to so many different people who relate to my work in so many different ways. You're the first person I've talked to who is kind of experiencing the book from the lens of my own son, Khalil, as a mixed race child who has a white parent and a a parent of color. Uh, What I would say is that more and more, I think Australia is becoming open and inclusive to the idea of people from different communities and cultures loving each other and coming together and having children together. I think that really is our future. And I think, you know, I've seen uh, comedians, uh, uh, South Asian comedians like uh, Russell Peters make the joke that, you know, a hundred years from now, the entire human race will just be one brown thing because we're all just, you know, coming together in this way. And so in many ways, it is also a story that I try to tell, which is trying to imagine our future as as a species that are more and more in a kind of globalized context coming together and loving each other across racial lines. And I think it's incredibly important, especially for mixed race children and the parents of mixed race children to begin to understand how our children are going to navigate a world where they are both in some ways the benefactors of certain privileges, being members of a dominant culture, and then also the victims or the or the oppressed members of a marginalized community, and what responsibilities they are going to have to carry as members of two communities that are, are simultaneously privileged and oppressed. Mohammed, I think I've said this to you before, We are of an age, I guess, and I grew up in Sydney and I've read all of your work and as a white girl at an all-girls school back in the 90s, I was told not to go near boys from Punchbowl High and the like. I am literally what you are writing against and I would like to add to what you just said that everybody who reads your work has a responsibility to do better and to learn and to not teach their kids the lesson that I was told. Thank you, Astrid. I'd love to contextualize some of what you just said. So my previous book in particular is set at Punchbowl Boys High School. It's called The Lebs. And of course, the other half of you is a standalone novel, but follows on from the story that we leave in The Lebs. So of course, there's more references to the conversations around Punchbowl Boys High School. But I was a student at Punchbowl Boys High School. It was a public school, but it was 95% Arab Australian Muslim. I went there during the September 11 attacks, during the narratives around the SCAF gang rapes and you know Arab Muslim men being sexual predators. I was at that school when you were seeing young boys, you know, who were 14 and 15 appearing on the front pages of the Daily Telegraph, you know, who are Arab and Muslim background being called drug dealers and gangsters. And my school was surrounded by barbed wires and cameras. It was literally treated as a prison. And the media construction around these boys, these children as sexual predators, as terrorist suspects, as gangsters is something that literally traumatized us. In fact, I remember seeing a meme in 2015 about the film 50 shades of gray and the the meme said if mr gray was a wog or a leb it would be called 50 years in prison and the implication of that meme in 2015 was that the way in which brown men and men of color are constructed in terms of their sexuality 
versus the way white men are constructed, you know, brown men's sexuality is immediately identified as predatory and criminal. And that was in 2015, I saw that meme. And, and the scaf gang rapes took place in the year 2000. So even 15 years later, the memory of the way that media narrative played out, specifically making it a problem of Arab and Muslim culture, is still remembered. We still remember that pain and being demonized that way. We still remember meeting girls from the schools that you went to who were like, we will not talk to you. You know, we don't want anything to do with you because we have been told that you're predators. And so I really believe this is the, the best part, point I can make in response to your statement is I really believe that the best way we can subvert those narratives and we can transform the way people, you know, minority men are seen, indigenous men, Arab and Muslim men, men of color, black men is through literature, is through storytelling. You can't know me and you can't know my son, Khalil, through a media narrative. You can only know us through our own words and through our own stories. Thank you for saying that, Mohammed. I obviously would like everybody to read your book. Based on what you've just said, I would also like to give a shout out to Randa Abdel Fattah's latest book, Coming of Age in the War on Terror, where she, it's a nonfiction work where she actually takes apart the media narrative uh, of young Arab and young Muslim boys in Australia, particularly in Sydney, but throughout Australia, and shows how very damaging and problematic it is. Can I uh, say something in response to that? Because I totally agree. So Coming of Age in the War on Terror um, is a book that I actually had the privilege of working on and reading an early draft when Rhonda was working on it. And um, me and Rhonda will be in conversation about our new books, Coming of Age in the War on Terror and the other half of you at the Melbourne Writers Festival this year. Believe it or not, on the exact same day, after we finish that in conversation at the Melbourne Writers Festival in the morning, we're going to jump on an aeroplane. We're going to fly back to Sydney. We're going to head to the Sydney Opera House. And then we're going to have a similar dialogue with Ghassan Haj and Sarah Soleh for the Antidote Festival at the Opera House. And so I really encourage people to keep an eye out for those events. Rhonda is my sister and one of the most inspiring uh, writers in the country uh, in Australia today. Mohammed, thank you so much for being uh, with us today. I know you've had a conversation with Astrid on other podcasts before, but this is the first time I've had the privilege of chatting with you and it has been an absolute pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you too, both of you, especially uh, you, Jamila. And I feel so moved by this conversation, especially because uh, this is the first conversation I've had since some of the more kind of demonizing portraits of my book have started to surface. And so I feel so re-energized and re-inspired through this dialogue. Thank you both so much. That's all we've got time for with Michael Mohammed Ahmed. His new book, to remind you, is The Other Half of You and it's available in any good bookstores or online. Thank you for being part of this conversation today. It was a really tender and sometimes difficult one and Astrid and I felt really privileged to speak with Mohammed. If you want to hear more chats about books with authors and sometimes without them, then I'd like to ask you to subscribe to Anonymous Was a Woman. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you've got time to leave a rating and a review, it really helps other people find this podcast and hopefully helps more people start reading too. This episode was made by Bad Producer Productions and Future Women working in collaboration. My enormous thanks go to Hachette Publishing, without whom this podcast would not be possible. See you on Monday.